This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. As a teacher, I love talking to people about their own teaching. It sparks my own creativity and passion for my profession. Hopefully you experience the same thing talking about your profession to people in your field. My podcast episodes about teaching with George Frizzell, Linda K. Wertheimer, Eric Lancaster, Robbie Gregory, and John Camardella have all been an absolute blast because talking about teaching to me is never boring. In most episodes, I've managed to bring up an example or two from my own classroom. I very much enjoyed putting shows on Jack Hobner on the spot about how he'd explain Rinzai Zen to a room full of 18-year-olds. Talking about how to convey lessons about religion of the world is an endlessly fascinating experiment and question for me. And today's guest is someone whose work I have grown to admire greatly in the past few months. Today's guest is not a K-12 educator, but is influential in shaping the discourse and actions around teaching about religion in American classrooms. Today, my guest is Benjamin Marcus. Ben Marcus is the Religious Literacy Specialist with the Religious Freedom Center of the Newseum Institute, where he examines the intersection of education, religious literacy, and identity formation in the United States. He has developed religious literacy programs for public schools, universities, U.S. government organizations, and private foundations. And he has delivered presentations on religion at universities and nonprofits in the U.S. and abroad. He has worked closely with the U.S. State Department, Interfaith Youth Corps, the Foundation for Religious Literacy, and the Cambridge Interfaith Program in the United Kingdom. In February 2018, Ben was accepted as a Fulbright Specialist for a period of three years. As a specialist, he shares his expertise on religion and education with select host institutions abroad. Ben chaired the writing group for the Religious Studies Companion Document to the C3 Framework, a nationally recognized set of guidelines used by state and school district curriculum experts for social studies standards and curriculum. He is a contributing author in the recently published Oxford Handbook on Religion and American Education, where he writes about the importance of religious literacy education. In 2015, he served as executive editor of the White Paper of the Sub-Working Group on Religion and Conflict Mitigation of the State Department's Religion and Foreign Policy Working Group. Marcus earned an MTS with a concentration in religion, ethics, and politics as a presidential scholar at Harvard Divinity School, and he studied religion at the University of Cambridge and Brown University. As mentioned in his bio, uh, Ben is most recently published in the Oxford Handbook of Religion and American Education, where he contributed Chapter 4, titled Religious Literacy in American Education. That is a topic both Ben and I care a great deal about, 
and religious literacy in American education is exactly the topic of our conversation today. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Ben Marcus. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with my guest, Ben Marcus. Ben, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit for the audience so we can kind of get a sense of what it is that you do? Sure. My name is Ben Marcus. I'm the Religious Literacy Specialist at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute in Washington, D.C. We're a center that's housed in the Newseum, if any of you have visited, and we are dedicated to educating the public about the religious liberty principles of the First Amendment. My role at the RFC is to lead our educators track. So I work with K-12 educators who are interested in teaching about religion in academically rigorous and constitutionally appropriate ways. And we provide different training and curricular resources to educators who who are interested in professional development. Excellent. So I've recently been able to read some of your writing that um, I've been studying up, and you write a little bit about some examples in your life, and I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about how you became interested in religion as an academic discipline that you could follow into a career. Sure. So it depends on how far back you want to go. I it's think up to it you. Started... What are, yeah, what are like the transformative moments? Yeah, yeah. So for me, it started... In my family, uh, just growing up outside Chicago, my mom is Italian Roman Catholic. My dad is a humanist Jew from New York. And their parenting style was to raise my brother and I with exposure to both traditions. And so as I grew up, I went to Sunday school in a Catholic church and I had a baptism and a first communion. But I also went to Saturday school and had a bar mitzvah. So for me, it was really interesting to grow up exposed to both my mother's Catholic tradition and my father's humanist Jewish tradition, and to really try to make sense of that. And unfortunately, I didn't actually have a lot of opportunity to explore it in schools. I went to public schools, K-12, really excellent public schools outside Chicago, but I didn't actually have a lot of opportunity to study religion in the classroom. It came up a little bit in an AP World History class, came up a little bit in my ninth grade social studies class, But really beyond that, there wasn't a lot of attention to the study of religion. So when I got to college, what I applied to do in college was actually medieval studies. I thought I would be a medieval studies concentrator. I thought I would study specifically. I was a kind of precocious, nerdy uh, 18-year-old. I thought I'd study medieval England between 1066 and 1300. That was my favorite place, my favorite period. I love it. Yeah, I know. I don't know really how I came up with that. But I knew that in order to understand the period, I'd have to understand something about religion. So I started taking some religious studies courses and immediately fell in love. My first course was uh, an Islam 101 course with a professor named Nancy Kalik at Brown University. And she really just got me so excited to think about what it means to study religion academically. I didn't really know that that was a a full uh, option for my concentration or my major. I didn't really know what that meant for me beyond college, but I knew that that was something I wanted to study more. So those early experiences, like leading into Brown, um, kind of like launched this for you. And then you went on to the University of Cambridge and Harvard Divinity School, right? 
That's right. So how were those years in Cambridge and Harvard important for you extending on those really positive first experiences at Brown? Yeah, so at Brown, that's really where I got to learn about religion as an academic subject, but it really was even more critical for thinking about the difference between the academic study of religion and the practice of religion. How differentiated those two things are, whether they should be be differentiated, why they're differentiated. And that's really because of a mentor of mine named Janet Cooper Nelson. She's the university chaplain at Brown University, and she encouraged me to think about how I could, as someone who was working in the uh, Office of the Chaplains and Religious Life as a student, student employee, and also as a student in the Religious Studies Department, how could I be a bridge between those two worlds and help try to create some dialogue between the people who practice religion and the people who study religion? And so that really set me down the road that, that I'm still on today. Uh, she encouraged me to, to begin something called the Brown Religious Literacy Project, which was a co-curricular course dedicated to bringing together scholars and practitioners to talk about what it means to be religiously literate. That's really why I ended up writing a thesis on religious literacy education. And so that was the, the real, um, you know, importance of Brown in my current profession, professional life is that early thinking about what religious literacy means and to what extent it should connect the academic study of religion and people's lived religious experience. Came, so, yeah. So where does teaching come in? Like, how did you get involved in intersecting the um, public school teaching world into the religious studies strand as well? Yeah, so I think for me that came in partially because of my personal experience having gone through K-12 schools without learning about religion and then having this incredible experience at Brown. I wanted to think about how do we bring the academy undergraduate education closer to at least secondary education. So you saw like a gap. Go ahead. So you saw that gap there that needed to be filled. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And, Go ahead. and at, around that time, in 2007, a book came out by Stephen Prothero called Religious Literacy. And he talked quite a bit about the fact that schools weren't teaching about religion. That was sort of the point of that book. And I, I agreed with the thesis that we should be teaching about religion, but I didn't necessarily agree with how he was talking about how we should be teaching about religion. And that's when I was introduced to the work of Diane Moore as well. Uh, and, and so it all was sort of coming together. And then you asked earlier about Cambridge and Harvard. I studied abroad at the University of Cambridge and really the value of that, there was, there was a lot that was really great about the experience, but it allowed me to develop some insight about models for teaching about religion outside the United States. And the United States is very unique in how it conceives of the relationship between religion and education. And the UK was just a totally different cultural, political, legal milieu. And so I wanted to understand why the UK was so different, what they were doing that we could borrow from, what they were doing that we legally aren't allowed to do in public schools. And so it gave me that outsider's perspective on my own experience um, and and helped me develop some, some new ways of thinking about education. So what was really amazing to me is I taught in England in Surrey and oh. all public schools there have religious education coursework for for all high school students right right yeah so that was a really amazing memory going back because um i took some religious studies courses in college as well at mizzou but then when i taught at 
In England, in high school, I noticed there was the religious education strand that was entirely absent from my entire experience as well. So your experience and my experience overlap. And then we both found that this entirely different program exists for high school students at our friends in the UK. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you've seen, but recently there was the final report of a commission on religious education in the UK that came out with guidelines for what they think should happen for the future of religious education. So I'm really curious to see where they go with it. It struck me that their some of their recommendations brought the UK system a little bit more in line with at least the concepts and tools that we talk about in the United States. I saw, a head, I saw a headline today from a Guardian article asking that they add secularism and atheism mm-hmm. and agnosticism to the UK's religious education program, which I thought was pretty interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the writings that you've done. You've got a lot of stuff out. So in an article of yours called Teaching About Religion in the Public Schools, Law into Practice, I loved your opening line, religion is a third rail in public schools. Now, I'm a teacher who, I, whenever I had a religious studies class, I put my all into the teaching of religious studies in my class. So this line was very interesting, very captivating to me. So can you give us a brief overview of how precisely religious studies is third rail from your vantage point working in the policy world? Sure. So I sometimes am guilty of extending metaphors or analogies too much. So uh, hopefully this doesn't come across as too over overplayed. But essentially what I was trying to say is that it's a third rail in that it powers the whole education system. And if if stepped on incorrectly, you can really electrocute yourself and, and be quite injured. <laughs> so yes. I think teaching about religion can be a really critical, vital component of a well-rounded holistic education. And in fact, thinking about religion and the role of religious communities and individuals over time, as well as people who identify as non-religious, can be the way that we have a deeper analysis, a deeper conversation about literature, about history, about human geography, about uh, civics. And so we need to incorporate religion because it will make the rest of it run well, it will it will provide meaning and deeper significance to the to the work that we're doing in education. At the same time, if you say something wrong, you're liable to get shocked. And I have a, a colleague named David Calloway who's fond of saying that you have to teach about chemistry really poorly for a really long time in order to get sued, but you have to say something wrong once about religion, uh, and you might open yourself up to to a lawsuit in school. So. It's this very sensitive subject. It's partially because people feel so strongly about it. And what the role of, of educators and uh, professional development support professionals should be is, is making teachers feel more comfortable approaching edu- uh, re- education about religion so that they don't get shocked, so that they're able to harness the power of education about religion without getting harmed. What's so funny about that is that I spoke with John Camardella, who I'm sure you know, and he and I, during our podcast discussion, we both talked about how we would point out moments in our classes where students can try to get us fired. And we yes. discussed that um, in great detail, how, how, how sensitive this actually can be. And we give them case studies and examples of teachers getting in trouble all over the country um, for saying or doing something that, um, you know, could get them into hot water for whatever reason. So on the other hand, as a nation, 
one of the biggest questions that I always got from the parents in my classes is, I thought it was illegal to teach about religion in a public school. And there's this myth that the Supreme Court has banned religion from our classrooms, which is totally not true. And I know that you've done a lot of research and reading about the court cases that have gone into this, but why is it so hard to dispel this myth that the Supreme Court has banned religion in our classrooms? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is somewhat complicated. I think the model that the founding director of our center, Charles Haynes, uses is a helpful one in trying to understand the history of religion and education and why it's still so contentious today. So he talks about in the past, there used to be a model of the sacred public school that from the sort of early days of common schools and then public schools up until the mid 20th century, a lot of public schools really were emphasizing or supporting certain kinds of Protestant Christianity and later just Christianity in general over other kinds of religious traditions. And people would read Bible texts in schools. Schools would have prayers that would be written by school administrators or others that students were encouraged or or required to say. And so there was this idea that public schools should be open to all, but that education about Christianity or or sort of the Judeo-Christian tradition in quotes uh, would would be a benefit to society. And then from the sacred public school, there was there developed the myth of the naked public school, and that was because of key Supreme Court cases like Abington v. Shemp and Engel v. Vitale. So these were cases that uh, they made it illegal and constitutional to to read the Bible devotionally in public schools as a as a requirement from the school. So students could still read the Bible devotionally on their own time. Teachers could read the Bible devotionally in if they were in a, a teacher's lounge, for example, but it was no longer allowed for teachers to require students to read passages of the Bible devotionally. Similarly, in Engelby Vitali, it made it, it, it declared it unconstitutional for, for schools to create and require school-sponsored prayers. So what happened from these two cases and and others around the same time was that students, parents, teachers, administrators started to misunderstand what the law said. They thought that the Supreme Court had vanquished religion from public schools entirely. They thought that the Supreme Court said students couldn't pray in school. That was wrong. Students can still pray at their desks uh, on their own time as long as it's not affecting the running of the normal school day. There's sort of certain reasonable restrictions on time, manner, and place. But for the most part, students can pray in schools. They can read the Bible devotionally. Teachers can actually have students read the Bible as a key uh, uh, component of the history of literature. So it's not that religion has been totally eradicated from schools. It's that school officials who are agents of the state, who are government employees, cannot require students to participate in religious activities. They can't favor one religion over another or religion over non-religion. And so this misunderstanding of what the Supreme Court said in the 40s, 50s, and 60s has really had a negative impact on how people understand religion and its role in education today. People don't want to get sued. They don't want to go to the Supreme Court. 
And part, because of the culture wars, it became politically expedient to argue that the, the, the left had eradicated religion from schools or people on the left wanted to argue that people on the right wanted to reintroduce sacred public schools. And so it, it became further entrenched through these political talking points. I'm, I'm thinking of this book I read several years ago about the social studies culture wars described by Gary Nash in a famous book that he wrote about social studies curriculum. But I had a couple thoughts on that. As a public school teacher, I have had many students in my own career who have gone to pray at certain times of the day, and it never once impacted um, my teaching. It didn't cause any distraction, and the students were often like, they're like, hey, thank you so much. I'll, I'll be right back. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Go ahead. And then another thing that you said is that I have actually used um, the story of Genesis and Noah in a 10th grade literature class for many years uh, because of the compare-contrast possibilities between the Greek myth of Deucalion and Pyra and also the story in the Epic of Gilgamesh from Utnapishtim and the uh, and the Flood. So there's so many um, literary connections that can be possibly made uh, by using the Bible as a text, as literature in a course in a secular environment. Absolutely. And as Justice Tom Clark wrote in the Abington v. Shemp decision, which ruled it unconstitutional to require students to read the Bible devotionally, what they did affirm, though, is that it's almost impossible to have a holistic education about the history of literature, the history of, of quote-unquote, Western civilization without understanding the role of religion and how it impacted literature and, and society. So the Supreme Court made it very clear that they weren't denying people the opportunity to teach about religion academically as part of ELA classes or, or social studies classes. So let's talk about your role a little bit. So as your career has progressed, um, you've had several different roles. How do you see your role of contributing to American conversations about religious literacy and public education? So I have the privilege of working within a center that's really dedicated to providing training and resources related to religion and education. And so I've had the opportunity to work on some uh, theory, right? So I'm able to develop some theories that then impact how we think about religion and education. I, I have tried to knit together different parts of the religious literacy field to offer some theories about what it means to be religiously literate as not just a collect as not just the acquisition of content knowledge, but actually also the facility with certain skills related to the ability to analyze how religion operates in private and public life. I also have offered some theories related to the construction of religious identity. So what does it mean to be religious? Well, often when we talk about religion in the United States, we really only talk about belief or faith. And we don't think about how religious identity also includes our behaviors, the things that we do, as well as the communities that we belong to. So these, this 3B framework, belief, behavior, and belonging, is something that I've borrowed from other scholars and then repurposed in the field of religion and education to think about what does it mean to teach about religion in a holistic way that doesn't just use a Protestant enlightenment model of religion that overly privileges belief or faith. So that's part of the, the theory side of things. Mm -hmm. But on the policy side of things, I worked really hard with, with 
teachers, with administrators, with subject matter experts in colleges or universities, as well as with professional development providers to achieve some consensus about the the policies, the, the learning objectives, and the concepts and tools that we want to emphasize as critical for high school graduates. So for example, I chaired the writing committee of the religious studies companion document that's now part of the C3 framework. So the C3 framework is published by the National Council for the Social Studies, and it's considered the best-in-class guidelines for how to teach about different social studies subjects in K-12 schools. And so now, for the first time, a major education organization has released specific learning objectives and specific guidelines for what it means to teach about religion. And you mentioned John Camardella. He was actually on that writing committee with me. He and Seth Brady and I all co-developed the idea of this document. So it was really great to be able to work with him on that. So let's talk a little bit more about teachers as well. So um, I I know about my own experiences of teaching religious studies in my own town, Columbia, Missouri, with my mentor, <clears throat> George Frizzell, who has appeared on this show. And we've both mentioned our mutual admiration for the work of John Camardella, who's a well-known religious studies teacher in Chicago. But I'm curious about what's going on in the rest of the country as well, because my connections are very limited. So tell me what you see about teachers who teach religious studies in high schools across the country? Like, what does our national situation look like as far as, like, religious studies in high schools around the country? Yeah, that's a really great question. For a long time, the narrative was that people weren't teaching about religion in schools. And so a lot of scholars and activists who are committed to religious literacy education spent a lot of their time arguing that we needed to be teaching about religion, that no one was doing it, but we should be. That, I think, is no longer the case. From what I've seen, more and more and more teachers are invested, committed to teaching about religion, but it's done on a very ad hoc basis. So there's not a national conversation between these different religious uh, groups that are committed to religion and education. So there's a, you know, a summer institute in New York through ICNY, there's a summer institute in California through UCLA, There's a summer institute in Texas through Rice University. We host one at the Religious Freedom Center in conjunction with NCSS. There's one in Maryland. There's one in Illinois. There are small little groups in Virginia that are working on things. There's a group in Kentucky that's working on new standards uh, mandated by actually the state government related to teaching about Bible in schools. Utah has had a longstanding commitment to religion and education. There's a new group in Massachusetts uh, that is through the Uberoi uh, Foundation, they are working on some training related to Dharmic traditions. I have presented for the last two summers in Maine to a group through Seeds of Peace that is talking not only about religion and education, but that's one component of what they do. And then, of course, the RFC has a longstanding project now in the state of Georgia, working with a number of different public schools in Georgia to think about how to teach about religion in academically rigorous and constitutionally appropriate ways. So it's happening all around the country, but these groups aren't really speaking with one another. There's not a an umbrella organization that we all go to and talk about what we can be doing to support one another. And that I think is the new frontier, is how do we gather together all these groups to work together so that uh, you know not everyone's rowing in different directions so we're spinning in circles, but that we're actually moving forward down the river. When you go and you meet with all these groups of teachers, 
do you spend like the first like entire day alleviating their fears about going into this kind of gig? Yeah, we definitely spend a lot of time <laughs> doing that. So we talk about the court cases, what they have said and what they haven't said. We talk about common misconceptions about the relationship between religion and education. We talk about consensus statements. So the founding director of the center, again, Charles Haynes, spent decades crafting consensus statements with people across the religious, ideological, political spectrum to say, we disagree on many things, but here's what we agree on when it comes to teaching about religion and the protection of the rights of students of all religions and none in schools. So we do a lot of that preparatory work to allay some of their concerns. And often they're concerned about who we are. Why are we yeah. coming into the class to talk about religion and education? What's our agenda? Are we subtly trying to proselytize? Are we subtly, subtly trying to make students atheists? And so for that, we often draw on this study that was done by Emil Lester and Patrick Roberts in California. In Modesto, California is the only district that we know to date that requires all students to go through a world religions class. And what they found through this study is that the students who completed the course didn't become more or less religious, but they did become more likely to protect the rights of students of people, in, including with whom, sorry, they are more likely to protect the rights of people with whom they strongly disagree. That's so amazing. We this case that education about religion isn't about changing students' religious identity. It's about a cultivating a civic competency. You know, I have an example that I was thinking of. Um, I had a student in one of my classes two years ago who was a staunch atheist. He declared his atheism in front of the entire class on day one. And a student who was a lifelong evangelical who declared her lifelong evangelicalism on day one in front of the entire class. And these two students would kind of snipe at each other across the room at the beginning of the year. And then as the year went on, that stopped and they would perk up a little bit when the other one would talk and then on the last day of school they did their final project together I had a project for the end of the school year and those two students worked together during the final and it was beautiful and I found that the religious studies classes didn't like make people into something else it actually made them much closer and less afraid of talking to somebody who disagreed with them, as you just mentioned. So like I have, I have not seen that in like the study like you have, but I've seen that with my own eyes in the classroom. So that's really powerful to me. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the kinds of stories that we try to, to elevate. The American Academy of Religion released guidelines in 2010 for teaching about religion in K-12 schools. And they said that they're, theory of change, their hypothesis also, is that teaching about religion reduces the bigotry and prejudice that often fuels violence. Mm -hmm. And so at the de minimis is that we want to make sure that different religious communities in the United States aren't perpetrating acts of violence against one another. But we also want to reduce the underlying bigotry and prejudice that create antagonism and disrespect between people of different religious traditions or no religious tradition. So after you alleviate the fears of these teachers who are going into this field, what pumps them up? What excites them about this job? It might be a selection bias because we're speaking with teachers who are interested in listening to us. 
But for the most part, the teachers that we speak to just recognize the the intrinsic value and uh, of teaching about religion for understanding other parts of life, whether that's you know history or politics, economics, culture, the things that affect us in our day-to-day lives. And they also recognize that students always perk up when, when they're teaching about religion. Students like to discuss these issues that are all around them. They read the news, they, they are online, they're watching movies, they're listening to music, they're experiencing the world that we're experiencing, and they're also seeing that religion is popping up again and again and again. Not to mention in their own lives, you know, they might be personally religious or they might be personally committed atheists. And so they have this personal connection to religion that's also motivating them to think deeply about how religion's shaping, shaping culture. And so I think teachers are excited to get a subject that can interest students. You know, often they're asked to teach about subjects that students don't really care about. They're not so interested in. They don't necessarily pay attention a lot in class. So when they have the opportunity to teach about a subject that's going to get students engaged, they're really ready to, to learn how to do that. Yeah, teaching about religion was never boring for me, and it's never boring to learn about. It, like It's just so personally rewarding for me as well, and I would often joke with the students that whenever I would have a guest speaker, I would say like, yeah, I'm bringing in a guest speaker, but it's mostly for me. It's not for really as much for you guys. And it was just a big joke, but like I was never bored when we had yeah. cool stuff like that. So um, there's an article of yours that I read recently on EdWeek that anybody can find. And it says, uh, so you have some great teaching tips in the article that you disseminate to the public called The Seven Eyes. So tell me about some best practices that you encourage all religious studies or social studies teachers to try out in their classrooms. Sure. So I won't go through all the seven eyes. I think it gets a little unwieldy, but the principles that are behind it are related to how we talk about religion and how we encourage inquiry in class. So first of all, we want to have students playing some role in deciding how they're going to engage with the subject. It makes them more invested in the subject. It makes them more likely to think more deeply about what the NCSS calls the inquiry arc, right? So how do you take students from inquiry to analyzing evidence using disciplinary concepts and tools to evaluating evaluating sources and then take uh, communicating conclusions and taking informed action. So you want to bring them through this inquiry arc and the seven eyes describes in some ways how, how to do that with religion. But also what's critical to the seven eyes is that we want to navigate a middle ground between just exposing students to vocabulary or content knowledge about religion on the one hand or just talking about the skills that religious studies scholars apply to the study of religion on the other. We want to give them some content knowledge and then some opportunity to practice applying the skills that a religious studies scholar brings to bear on that content knowledge. So for example, we want to start with an introduction, right? So a lot of students just don't know anything about different religious traditions, especially religious traditions other than their own that they might have in, in their family. So how do you provide just a basic introduction to a religious tradition that does not essentialize? You don't want students to 
come away from the introduction thinking that they know everything about the tradition, that they understand the, the quote unquote core concepts or the core tenets. We want them to recognize that there's internal diversity in traditions, that traditions, people within a religious community don't all believe the same thing or practice the same way. But at the same time, you need to give them this general introduction. So once you move from the introduction, though, you want to start bringing it closer to the content that you're going to already be covering in the course. So the seven eyes model is designed to say that or designed with the idea in mind that most teachers don't have the luxury of teaching a standalone religious studies course. But what they can do is integrate the study of religion into their existing curricula. So if you're a social studies teacher, you might be teaching a unit on the civil rights movement, for example. So how do you provide a basic introduction to Christianity or Christianity in America in order to then move into some investigation of internal diversity within different American Christian communities with the ultimate goal of looking at how American Christianity intersected with the civil rights movement? So you do this movement from a general introduction to a deeper dive in internal diversity that might be somewhat abstract to a really concrete application of looking at how internal diversity within American Christian communities impacted the civil rights movement so that on the one hand you had folks like Martin Luther King Jr. who was a leader of the civil rights movement and advocate for uh, civil rights for African Americans. And on the other hand, you might have someone like Bob Jones Sr. who is a also a reverend doctor, but is an advocate for continued segregation. So what does it mean to look at this internal diversity as it intersects with public life? And that's really what the seven eyes is about, is saying you don't have to have a standalone religious studies course. There are ways to introduce the subject of religion and then tie it to the curriculum that you're already teaching. The concept of internal diversity is something that is immeasurably important to to go into. I'm thinking about one example last spring. I had a panel of all women uh, Christian pastors from three different denominations of Christianity. So I had a Methodist minister, I had a Disciples of Christ pastor, and I also had an evangelical pastor. And they were in front of the room, and every time a student would ask a question— the three pastors in front of the room realized that they were all answering the questions differently. And they all took a moment and looked at each other on several occasions and acknowledged that they were learning from their colleagues from different denominations live in the moment in front of a group of 30 18-year-olds. Based on a student's question, these three women who have a lifetime of experience in the church were realizing that they were still had they still had plenty of new things to learn. And the internal diversity is one of the biggest takeaways that all of my students took away from that day. And if I chat with some of them on Facebook now they've all gone on to college and work and stuff like that, they still bring that up as a powerful moment. It's really amazing. So I've spoken like at length with other um podcast guests, um, George Frizzell, Linda K. Wertheimer, John Camardella, about guest speakers and direct engagement between students and practitioners. And so George Frizzell was my mentor, and he was the first episode that I did on this show. 
And so he started this class in Columbia, Missouri in 1989, and he established a tradition of having 20 plus guest speakers per year. And I carried that in whenever I brought the class to a new school. And then John Camardella and I chatted about um, how he is not currently using guest speakers. And Linda K. Wertheimer's book, Faith Ed, describes some guest speakers uh, gone awry. So how do you see teachers um, using guest speakers and field trips? How do you feel about that? Well, there's a big debate in this field about guest speakers, and there are some who say that you shouldn't bring in guest speakers ever, and then there are some who say that it's really important to bring in guest speakers. So it depends on who you talk to. I'll briefly try to describe the different positions that people have and why. So on the one hand, you have some scholars like Diane Moore, for example, who says that Guest speakers and field trips can be challenging precisely because of how powerful those experiences are. So if students go into a house of worship or if they have a guest speaker in the classroom, because that one that that in-person experience is so powerful, they might forever associate that engagement, that relationship, that conversation with all members of a religious community. So for example, if they've never met a Muslim before and they go to a mosque and speak with the imam there and that's their only experience of of Islam, they might forever think that all Muslims are like that one imam that they met. Some people also have questions about guest speakers and field trips for legal reasons. So Often religious leaders are not trained to speak about religion academically. They're not trained to talk about the internal diversity of the tradition. In other words, they're not trained to think about how religion is embedded in culture and describe that analytically for for students. And instead, they're more familiar with evaluative statements about who a good Muslim or a bad Muslim or a good Christian or a bad Christian or a good atheist or bad atheist is. So you might get someone in front of the classroom, for example, who says that, well, real Christians or real Muslims or real Hindus believe in X, Y, and Z, whereas these other people who commit acts of violence or people who who make certain arguments are not actually, quote unquote, real members of the community. And so that crosses the line, might cross the line in some cases into an establishment of religion, or at least for some students, they might see those guest speakers as effectively their teacher for their day, they might not differentiate between the school as a form of government, a public school as a, as an area of, of government, and guest speakers who are not um, employed by the school. So, so they're worried about this constitutional um, line and whether you're blurring the boundaries between academic and devotional study of religion. So those are some arguments against bringing in guest speakers or field trips. The arguments for are somewhat tied to the arguments against. So because (laughs) it's such a powerful experience, students should have it. In order to actually more deeply engage with the subject matter, they should be able to speak with people who are members of those religious communities. They, so for example, one of my colleagues, Kate Sewells, who's a doctoral candidate at Boston College, does her research on 
training opportunities for teachers who are learning how to teach about religion. And one of her findings is that one of the most powerful experiences again and again and again that's cited by teachers who go through these programs is their ability to go on site visits and meet with members of religious communities. And so she says, you know, how could we deny the ability of our students to meet members of religious communities, to go on site visits, when the research is showing that it's often the most powerful uh, method of learning about religion, or at least it's for, for participants of these programs, it's cited as one of the most powerful parts of the experience. So what I think is that it's all in the framing. So what you described earlier about the three women religious leaders in your class is how I think you should bring in guest speakers if you're going to. So if you are going to bring in guest speakers, you want to create it, create the experience in such a way that you're modeling internal diversity. So you want to bring in three different members of the religious tradition who are going to offer three different perspectives. You don't want to just bring in one person who's going to give the idea to students that the religion is a monolith. I would also recommend that you bring in guest speakers, or at least consider guest speakers who might not be religious leaders, but might be religious studies scholars. So all around the United States are universities, colleges, community colleges that are filled with scholars who have learned to study religion from an academic perspective. And they often are excellent sources of knowledge about these different religious traditions, and they're trained to speak about internal diversity within traditions, about the embeddedness in culture of religion, and so they might be good options. Yeah, one of my favorite guest speakers that I ever had in was a professor of African indigenous religions. His name is mm-hmm. David Amponza. He was a professor at Mizzou, but now he's at Penn, and he would come in and talk about that from his academic training standpoint. What's so interesting, Ben, is that as I was listening to you just now, I thought about all the times that my guest speaker appearances could have gone very wrong. Um, I also think about the power that those situations held, and I don't take that lightly at all. And I also think about the fact that at my next school, next time I have religious studies class, I may not be able to have in anyone. And my last school was like, yeah, bring in as many as you want. And the next school that I have may say, bring in none or bring in this amount, or you can do it based on these criteria. And uh, so I will take those uh, those words um, that you just offered as uh, I'll take those forward with me. I appreciate Great. that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the question. So um, you have a chapter out called Religious Literacy, and you include some future directions for the field, including like the constitutional appropriateness of teaching about religion, helping public school teachers facilitate meaningful conversations about religions without asking students to challenge their own identities, and investigating whether religious literacy education reduces prejudice and stereotypes in society. So since you wrote these words, I think in 2016, what do you see as some success in this area and also maybe some challenges where we're still struggling as a country? Yeah, I think right now I mentioned all these different initiatives that are popping up around the country to train teachers to teach about religion. And that's really great. 
often those initiatives are targeting in-service teachers and not necessarily pre-service teachers. And there's not a movement, a concerted effort to change the way that teacher education programs are equipping pre-service educators to teach about religion. And that I think is really where we need to be focusing our attention. How do we get faculties in teacher education schools to spend time training and equipping educators to handle these really sensitive subjects? How do we make sure that in the cultural awareness or cultural sensitivity classes that most teachers take, there is a section on religious diversity and inclusion? How do we make sure that social studies teachers who are tasked with teaching US history or world history have some understanding of how scholars approach the study of religion and the role of religion in U.S. history or world history. So I think that's really an outstanding issue in the field, is we need to get better at institutionalizing religious studies education for pre-service teachers. There are some successes. You know, there's a new study that Emil Lester is conducting in Georgia about the effectiveness of teaching about religion, and it's uh, still underway, so we don't know what the findings will be, but that will be a new great resource for us as we think about religious literacy education and its effects. Those are some of the, the main things that, you know, the new successes uh, and, and also outstanding challenges for us. Okay, cool. Um, so we have talked a lot about schools and teaching, and I want us to step back from this for a second because there might be some people listening to this that have no involvement in schools whatsoever. So say a person is listening to this in an office like somewhere in like Kansas City or something, and they have no involvement in public schools, private schools, teaching, or anything that you and I have been talking about today. But say that that person wants to be able to talk to... Um, like one of their Hindu neighbors or somebody who's Sikh down the street from them or um, local Muslims who um, are in their town or Baha'i people, how will it benefit that office worker in Kansas City to care and learn more deeply about many different religious traditions and to engage with people in their own town? It's important for people to recognize the reality of the United States today. So the Public Religion Research Institute has done a really excellent study on the religious landscape of the United States. And what they found is that things are changing pretty drastically. So for the first time in US history, the United States is no longer more than 50% white Christian. So less than 50% of the population identifies as both white and Christian. Also, for the first time in U.S. history, less than 50% of the population identifies as Protestant. These are really fundamentally new developments in the history of religion in the United States. We're also seeing a spike in the number of unaffiliated Americans, so people who don't claim a religious affiliation, don't belong to any one religious group. We're also seeing a pretty dramatic increase in the number of folks who aren't Christian at all. So we're seeing an increase in Muslim American, the number of Muslim Americans, the number of Sikh Americans, number of, of Buddhist Americans, of Hindu Americans. So, so this increase in non, uh, increase in the number of adherence to non-Christian traditions is something that is 
is a new development in the United States. It really came out of changes in immigration laws in the 1960s. So as the United States becomes more religiously diverse, we'll have to figure out as Americans, how do we live productively in an increasingly religiously diverse society? And so this is a civic competency. It's a civic duty that is affecting all of us that we have to figure out how we're going to live with our deepest differences. Unfortunately, this increase in religious diversity has been accompanied by an increase in religion-related hate crimes. So if you look at a number of dis different statistics, you can track FBI statistics or SPLC statistics or ISPU statistics or others, what they're finding is that there's been an increase in the number of religion-related hate crimes in the last few years. So we need to figure out how to live with our neighbors, how to come to understand one another. That's why it's important. And so all of us in our different ways, through our jobs, through our personal lives, should find opportunities to reach out to folks who are different from ourselves and to learn more about them. Why does being religious or non-religious affect or how does it affect their lives? Why is that identity important to them? Is it important to them? What does it mean for them to call themselves religious or non-religious? Those are conversations all of us can have and it will enrich our personal lives, it'll enrich our professional lives, and it'll make our community uh, a stronger one. So taking our theoretical Kansas City office worker, um, maybe recommend a couple of books for this person to check out. Sure. There's a lot of different resources out there for folks who are interested in learning more about religion, about religious literacy, about religion and education. And it depends on their appetite for reading. So there is a great website that is created by the Pluralism Project at Harvard that has different portals for different religious traditions. It's totally free. You can click through these short essays written by scholars about different religious communities and come to learn more about them. The Religious Freedom Center has a resources page with dozens of articles and consensus statements about religion and education, what is legal, what is illegal, uh, how is it possible to, to talk about religion in schools or not. For the office worker who's not in education, for someone who's not in the education field, they might be interested in thinking about how to promote religious diversity and inclusion in their workplace. And that's also something that our center focuses on. We work with businesses around the United States who want to create uh, professional development training for employees and employers who are committed to uh, religious diversity and inclusion. We also would recommend a number of different books. So uh, probably if you're interested in education, there's a new Oxford Handbook of Religion and American Education that is really comprehensive and it's in its scope, it looks at a lot of different issues related to religion and education. There's a great accessible book about the history of religion in American education by James Fraser called Between Church and State. That's one of my favorite histories of, of religion and education. I would recommend Diana X, A New Religious America. It's a great longer book that is also quite accessible, but it's about the stories of religious communities that we often mistakenly think are new to the United States. So Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, it tells this long history of those different communities in the United States, that these aren't 
new religious communities, they've been with us for a very long time, that they are the story of, of the United States. I would also recommend, I, again, I think it depends on, on what uh, folks, listeners are interested in, but there is another great book by um, Diane Moore called Overcoming Religious Illiteracy, and that's a really good introduction to the term religious literacy, what it means, and how it's deployed in, in schools. So those would be my top recommendations. Ben Marcus, this has been a wonderful hour uh, spending with you today talking about religious literacy and religious studies education in the United States. Uh, where can people find more about your work and efforts if they want to see what you've done? That's a great question. They can reach out to me by email. You can find my email on our website. It's bmarcus at freedomforum.org. They can find me on Twitter at bpmarcus. Our website for our center is religiousfreedomcenter.org. And we also have some new excellent professional development modules for teachers. So if you want to learn more about any of the topics that we talked about today, we have free online professional development modules. Each is about an hour. They have readings and videos and interactive games and discussion questions. And those can all be found at constitution2classroom.org. And that, that's another great way to interact with a lot of the content that we've been talking about today. But people can email me, tweet at me, uh, or, or visit our website. Ben Marcus, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.